0: In my first professional job as a visiting nurse in Hoyoke, Massachusetts, in 1976, I wanted to establish a walking practice in the inner city. Veterans on the team said, it's not safe and it can't be done. What do you mean it can't be done? Of course it's safe. It can be done. I was so young, 24. Now I'm usually the oldest in the room, unless I'm with my wife, who's older than me. I thrive on youthful energy, people who take up the mantle of progress and charge forward with an energy I only faintly remember. Energy, ideas, single mindedness, stubbornness, connections into a world I only possess, a faint familiarity. Janice Tufty of Hasana Consulting knows my appreciation for young adults with chronic and complex challenges and disabilities, and my fascination with business successful advocacy organizations, financially independent of pharma and industrialized medicine. Janice introduced me to Sneha Dave, 25, CEO of Generation Patient, empowering young adults with chronic medical disabilities. Generation Patient facilitates events, online programs, and advocacy initiatives for young adults living with chronic and rare conditions to ensure they have the opportunities and resources to thrive. Generation Patient focuses on peer connection, advocacy, and access to educational information and resources as fundamental pathways to empowerment. Let's meet SNEA. Welcome to Health Hats, the podcast. I'm Danny Van Loon, a two-legged cisgender old white man of privilege who knows a little bit about a lot of health care and a lot about very little. We will listen and learn about what it takes to adjust to life's realities in the awesome circus of health care. Let's make some sense of all of this. Good morning, Sneha. How are you today?
1: Good. How are you?
0: I'm good. I'm good. I'm very excited to be talking to you. I think it was Janice Tufty that introduced us, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. A few weeks ago, I think. Yeah.
0: Yeah. When did you first realize health was fragile?
1: Yeah. I first realized health was fragile when I was about six years old. I don't think I really realized it at that time until I got a little bit older, but I realized that things wouldn't always be quote unquote normal for me when I was six and I was, you know, first diagnosed with ulcerative colitis and all the scopes that came about, all the procedures, all the different medication trials. All of the big pills that I had to swallow—I think I was swallowing about eight per day—and obviously, the remnants of swallowing eight big pills is that you don't have an appetite, and so you lose weight, and all of these different kind of cycles. I started re- realizing at an early age, but I wasn't as sick until middle school, which is when I had the biggest flare-up for ulcerative colitis, and I was in a period of isolation for a few years, from middle school to the middle of high school, due to the severity. Yeah. Yeah. And isolation, the way I define it is different than the way that we have right now because of the pandemic, but I would really rarely go to school. I didn't have a lot of friends. I was very much focused on my health. So it was staying at home was like the main thing I did because I was so fatigued all the time. I was so weak. Anytime I would even think about going to the grocery store it was so difficult because one of the symptoms that I had was constantly having to use the restroom and cause a lot of anxiety for me to leave the house because I used to have a lot of accidents and that isolated me, I think both socially, but also physically confined to my house for a few years. Yeah.
0: Wow. When did you make a transition from pediatric care? to adult care.
1: Yeah. So this is interesting. So I am from Indiana. I've gotten care in Indiana my whole life. And I go to Boston Children's, Texas Children's, and I see all these hospitals and they have really robust transition and transfer of care programs. But for me, and I think for the probably the majority of young adults, it's the transition is not very smooth. There's not a real hard stop on when you're going from the peed system to the adult system. But I also think more so it's challenging when you think about having to establish primary care, for example, having to go coordinate rheumatologists versus gastroenterologists and just so many different doctors. So my transition, I think, was very tumultuous in that I didn't have care, like solid care for about a year when I went to college. And that was really harmful for my health undoubtedly because I was having this newfound independence at the same time, trying to coordinate my care and manage my health. And I was also coming off of a major surgery. I had the colectomy surgery, which is the removal of my large intestine during my freshman year of high school and a few smaller surgeries following that. But And yeah, I think my transition and transfer probably happened about three years ago. I'm 24 now probably around when I was 21 was when I officially transferred to adult care.
0: Wow. What you're talking about is really not just different clinicians. You're also, are you also talking about making decisions for yourself, like a transition of, yeah, of Your own agency, your own decision-making, how did that transition go?
1: Yeah, absolutely. The first thing I thought of when you were saying that was health insurance, for example, and that is the most challenging thing. I think the first time I really called my own health insurance company was during college, and I thought it would be a quick 10-minute call to get it, one of my new infusions. And it turned out to be hours and hours on the phone with this insurance company. And that was the first time I really realized that the administrative part of being a patient was going to take a lot more time now that I had to do everything by myself. And my mom, I was so lucky. She's my primary caretaker when I was really sick. And so she took care of all that. Um, But I also didn't have a lot of room to really learn for myself. And so a lot of you know, now I see a lot of transition programs and doctors that really meaningfully make that transition and think about it really early on. And they start from 13 years old and they start asking the patients, what medications are you on? Do you know the dosage? Like these small questions really add up. And when I was making calls for the first time, I really didn't even know how to fill a prescription by myself. And so just Uh these little things were just things I had to learn all of a sudden. And obviously when you're young and you have to learn all these different things at once, it's a lot of these things are just inevitably not going to happen. And yeah, I think that was really a big challenge. And I see that for a lot of our community members. It's like learning, having to learn within such a tor- short time frame because our parents are really not allowed to really talk to the insurance company anymore or have that hands-on approach anymore as well.
0: So now you're talking about the community. So how did you transition from gazing at your own navel and thinking about yourself to thinking about there's more than just me? Like, how did that happen?
1: Absolutely. I think part of it was the fact that I was seeking so much support for myself. And it was really difficult because the support groups where I was at were all comprised of people who are significantly older than me. And so it was really hard to relate on a lot of levels in terms of being so young and sick for the rest of your life. And so I was really seeking that support. And so the first initiative that I started was actually when I was around 13 years old. I started the Crohn's and Colitis Teen Times, which was just a newsletter for young adults with IBD in the state of Indiana. So it was me and my late best friend. He was really the BD. only person. Yeah. Yeah. He was the, really the only person I knew. And what does
0: I- IBD mean?
1: Oh, yes. Inflammatory bowel diseases.
0: Okay, good. Thank yes.
1: you. Yes. And that inflammatory bowel diseases includes Crohn's and Colitis. Yeah. 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 So
0: you did a newsletter.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the newsletter feature things like other young adults with IBD. We did an interview with doctors. We did recipes, just some really small things that just made it feel like
0: yeah.
1: you, there There were other young people out there that were.
0: It was weak.
1: Yeah. So me and my late best friend, so Corey, he passed away with Crohn's disease and osteosarcoma. And we really, yeah, it really felt like a lot of times it was just us. And we went to Camp Oasis, which is a camp for kids with Crohn's and colitis, but that only happens one week per year. And the rest of the year, it's what is there. And also this was 10 years ago when social media was not as big. Kids were not having phones all the time. And we really were seeking that. So we mailed these newsletters and then it, grew from there.
0: I'm sorry, I'm interrupting, but Dennis, yes. with like people that you met at camp, like, how did you identify the group of people to put, did you develop your mailing list?
1: Yeah. So initially it was through small sort of IBD conferences that oh, were okay. around the area. And we did Develop a mailing list through Camp Oasis as well, but I would say mainly it was through conferences and fundraising events and that sort of thing. And then we developed a website from there, and obviously a web platform—it's a lot easier to find. We then we started having sort of an international audience as well. And what was interesting was that there were young adults with lupus, for example, or other conditions that were really viewing the content. And I think that was in part because. They were seeing other young people who are sick who may not have the same condition, but were just been facing similar societal systematic challenges of entering right. adult. And so during my freshman year of college, I created the Health Advocacy Summit, which is now Generation Patient. And we are not disease specific. So we have really young adults from everywhere from Lyme disease to Ehlers-Danlos syndromes, POTS, lupus, arthritis, you name it, really all of the chronic and rare conditions. And we started out as an event in October 2017 in Indiana. And that was really cool because it was in person. And a lot of the attendees, there were only about 14 attendees, but those attendees were all from Indiana, all young adults with various chronic and rare conditions. And a lot of them had not ever met someone else their age with a chronic condition. And so that was really cool to have a safe space and we didn't include adults and this was just solely for young adult patients and I think that brought a lot of intimacy and honest conversations yes. and very quick friendships and so that was really cool I'm going to pause there just to make sure <laughs> you don't- uh,
0: uh, yeah it's,
1: uh,
0: yeah you know it was being funny with the navel gazing part but I do know, even for myself, that I go through periods where I just don't have the energy to look beyond my skin, mm. and then, then, like you, I'm an activist. But but, and and so one of the things about chronic illness is that it goes in cycles, and so how, so it seems like. What you've done is you've developed something that has not necessarily a life independent of you, but mm-hmm. maybe you're the linchpin. But it, it'll go if you have to check out for a while. Yes. Yeah. How did you grow that? That the so that you could feel comfortable calibrating your energy for external dealing with your own stuff?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think this is an interesting question because I've thought about this a lot. And I think part of it is that I've lived with ulcerative colitis since I was six years old. And so it's all I've ever known. And I think in that regard, it is Mm -hmm. somewhat of a blessing to have been diagnosed so early because I don't have this life. Beforehand, to really mourn or really think about what could have been. And so I've adapted, I think, a lot in terms of how to cope with low energy levels, how to do things. And I know that rest is really important. And I preach that, but I don't always follow that. But I think part of that is really just learning what works for your body and going from there. And I think for me, my parents have always been, for good or for worse, have been really in denial of the fatigue that comes about with IBD, inflammatory bowel disease until recently. And so really thinking about how they've always also just been supportive of, you can do whatever you want and you can accomplish whatever. But I think at the same time, again, I think it's really just learning your body. And I really think it's very difficult if you're diagnosed in adolescence or young adulthood, because you really do have to relearn everything. And there's a lot of grief that comes with that. So I think being diagnosed at yeah. such a young age, it, it is different for me in a lot of ways.
0: Oh, wow. So you've, you've, so you have a business. This is a business. This isn't just advocacy. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, I don't mean just, let's take, <laughs> scratch that. Yeah. It is advocacy and it's a business. Oh. So how, was there a point where you like realized, "Oh my God, this is a business. I need. I have a budget. I, I have strategy. I, yeah, marketing. You know what I mean? Can you talk about how it, it, you sort of grew into this? I've got a business. Oh my goodness.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I really, every waking minute during college was spent on the Health Advocacy Summit, now again called Generation Patient. But it wasn't until my senior year of college where we received our first major grant and that was from the Helmsley Charitable Trust. So they're a foundation based in New York City. And so we were funded under one of their disease arms. And that really, I think, in a lot of ways, gave us credibility and the ability to really grow and scale up what we were hoping to do. And just to give you a little bit of insight on how we operated before our grant funding, um, because we did that like for so long. I mean, we would do our summits for under $500. We would try to get all the in-kind donations we could get, like all the food donated we could. And so we were really savvy with saving and just making sure that we can do things under a really small budget to have the most high impact. But obviously, graduating college, I can't be doing all this for for no cost because I need to have financial independence as well. In addition, Sydney, who is our Director of Operations, she joined, I think, my sophomore year, Sydney Reed she's based in California and she joined, I think, my sophomore or junior year of college. And she's really been instrumental in growing the web platforms in addition Uh, to a lot of our branding, but really finding unique ways to create outreach. And so being able to have staff that can actually dedicate their full time is really important. So we have about three staff, including myself, as of this year. Yeah. And so we're really growing a lot.
0: HR issues on top of it.
1: Yeah. I'm the one who deals with all that. So hopefully that's going well. No, but it's a really tight-knit team. Julia, who just joined on, she had been interning with us for about a year before. And she just is a recent college graduate. She joined on with us. But yeah, it's been really interesting kind of thinking about different areas that we've been going and how to Receive grant funding for those areas. So, just to give you an idea, a couple of the areas that we're in is higher education. So, we focus a lot on increasing access and retention of chronically ill students within these institutions. Thinking about how, in the past and currently, accommodations like thinking about fatigue and more dynamic natures of our conditions, how it's really hard to seek accommodations for these types of things within institutions without. Being labeled as lying or, or just wanting to get out of certain situations. And so we're to really trying to think about that. And I think you know, the pandemic has been great for nothing but opening up opportunities like flexible <laughs> yeah. education and, and flexible work, which the disability community has been advocating for years and years for. But it has really shown that these types of modalities are possible. And we, are focusing on that with our higher education work, then we have peer support meetings. So we have about seven per month. We've been, we've done a little over 300 over the last two years, couple of years at this point.
0: We've had 300 what?
1: Peer support meetings. Okay. Yeah. So we, and that has been so interesting. It's been a consistent sort of support mechanism. And I really think peer support is one of the most undervalued tools that We use within the medical system. If you think about it relatively, it's not really difficult to put on and it's not financially going to drain anyone. Whereas, and I don't want to compare this necessarily to real mental health care, but real mental health care therapists, psychologists, psychiatrists are really expensive and difficult to find. And so, if there's anything else available like peer support that can at least, at the very least, reduce isolation and create a sense of community, that can be huge and yeah yeah, i'm
0: totally with you i spent many years working in behavioral health which gave me a real appreciation for peer support and i don't think it is at the very least i think it's at the very most Mm -hmm. and when you think about it how much is really medical most of it, really, most of what you deal with is life. Yeah. And professionals man, aren't that good at life.
1: Yeah, totally, yes.
0: It's not their expertise, and we shouldn't expect it to be their expertise. But, but peers, it is. And just having that, anyway. So Generation Patient is mm-hmm. your umbrella organization. Yes. The business. And then you do peer support, you do conferences, you do Mm -hmm. policy work. Tell us a little more about Generation Patient and how that operates.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I mentioned the higher ed work and the peer support meetings that we do, but in addition to that, we do events. So before the pandemic, we were supposed to be in about six different states, but all those have been canceled, obviously, since March of 2020. But we have done two international virtual summits where we bring together a little over 300 to 350 young adult patients from around the world. So oh
0: my God, isn't it yeah. great?
1: Yeah. And it's really cool to see how big our community is and how much it's growing. And I think just that sense is just really interesting to have that feeling of intimacy with other people who are you might not have even known beforehand, but have been brought together by a similar sort of circumstance. Our past two summits, and our third one is coming up this September 29th to October 1st. And so some of the topics, just to give you an example- Another
0: virtual we, session? So
1: we- we have topics from everything from body image with a chronic illness to entrepreneurship uh-huh. with a chronic illness, higher education, mental health, sexual health. We have the set this yeah.
0: anyway. Now a word about our sponsor, a bridge. Record your healthcare conversations with doctors and other clinicians with a bridge. <laughs> Push the big pink button and record. Read the transcript or listen to clips when you get home. Check out the app at abridge.com. A-B-R-I-D-G-E dot com. Or download it on the Apple App Store or Google Play Store. Let me know how it went. Thinking about your policy arm, there's... Too much to talk about here, but the so when you think about the policy part, what is it that your generation patient is focusing on these days in policy?
1: Yeah, so we received grant funding to be able to engage in policy this past January, and one thing about generation patient, we are industry independent, so we've declined all funding from whether that's the pharmaceutical industry, insurance, hospital industries. And that's, I think, put us in a very unique position within the patient advocacy space, because if you look at the budgets of a lot of these major foundations, there's millions and millions from industry. And oftentimes, they're silent on key issues of drug affordability. Like right now, we are in probably the biggest moment of drug pricing history. And today, I believe the the bill will go to the house for the inflation reduction right. act which is obviously huge and, and probably the largest probably the largest sort of loss for the pharmaceutical industry in decades if ever and so it, it's fascinating to see the silence from these big groups when there's so much funding coming from industry but nevertheless we are focused on a few different issues. So one is with the user fees. So the prescription drug user fee agreements with the FDA. I'm not sure if it's worth explaining what they are because it can get very confusing, but in brief, these user fees, I'm going to call them UFAs. They- the What? UFAs, they're known as like the Padufa. There's four different user fee agreements but the biggest one that we've been working on is the prescription drug user fee agreement and these pieces of legislation happen once every 5 years and 2022 is the year and it is a must pass bill because a large portion of the fda's budget comes from these user fees and these user fees are paid by for example the pharmaceutical industry whenever they submit an application to the fda but what's interesting is when these user fees pass and they are must pass there's a lot of opportunity to change and to mandate more fix from industry. So that might include more clinical trial transparency or reporting requirements. So a couple of things that we've been advocating for within the user fees have been increasing enrollment and understanding of drug disposition for adolescents and young adults with chronic conditions if you look at peds trials and adults trials, there's these two sort of demographic. Right, right. We haven't really looked at adolescents and young adults as a unique group, as we haven't also looked at older adults as much either. Yes. And so right. really,
0: and sometimes yeah. even women, which is right. like crazy. It's exactly. not a rare condition being a woman.
1: The second thing is pharmaceutical direct to consumer advertising on social media. We've been very concerned with the lack of oversight and regulation of of the pharmaceutical industry. And it's interesting because there's a recent Duke workshop in, I believe, November of 2021 that named young adults or adolescents and those with chronic conditions as the most vulnerable on social media. And we work at the intersections of these two demographics. And we're very concerned with the emergence of these Social media advertisements that are really looking like they're targeting our age and patient demographic. And we are trying to work to get FDA to release updated guidance. The last relevant guidance that we found was from 2014, which is like ages and ages in the social media world. And that's something that we've been working on as well. And that is more from the regulatory side as well. The last thing. Very quickly, we also are working on state drug affordability issues. So there's a lot of momentum for state-based drug pricing and creating prescription drug affordability boards on the state level. The first uh, prescription drug affordability board was created in Maryland in I believe 2019, but I'll have to double check up on the exact year. So it's a really novel concept, and it's really fascinating to give states more power to hold industry more accountable.
0: So I have two more two more things yeah the first is what should we have talked about that we haven't
1: i think we covered a few a lot of different things a little bit of a lot of different things i can basically very quickly also talk about our last program which is the crohn's and colitis young adults network okay that is our only disease specific programming so it's it's focused on young adults with inflammatory bowel diseases so crohn's and colitis and We are in the midst of launching our fifth year of our fellowship program. So our fellowship program is for young adults with IBD from around the world. So each year we select fellows. So this year we have fellows from Ethiopia, India, Dubai, and the U.S., and they produce monthly content for our website. They hear from monthly speakers on a variety of topics. We provide them with a small stipend. And then we partner with the U.S.-based IBD conference to really bring them whether that's virtually or in person, and have them advocate for really what the next generation of IBD patients are looking for in terms of treatment options. What are some of our most pressing needs at the moment? Again, yeah, this is our fifth year that we're launching, upcoming, and we have a couple of other programs that we just launched yesterday through the Crohn's and Colitis Young Adults Network. But oh my god, um, yeah. So
0: <laughs> wow, oh my, god. I'm, uh... yeah. So what would you like to ask me?
1: Yeah, I would love to know from you, especially with your sort of work in research, what the most pressing needs you feel like are for patients to get involved in launching research studies by ourselves and also giving more literacy about the research process. Because what I'm finding is we are all young adult patients working organically on a lot of this work and one of the challenges that we face is we have so many thoughts about research studies that yeah. we feel like have not been really addressed for young adults but how to really start that i think that'd be really helpful for me well
0: too. i think that that what you're doing which is going to the PCORI conference is yeah. a good start and i will um i will make every effort to introduce you to Kayla Cook, who's the executive director, and Kristen Carmen, who's the director of uh, public engagement. I think getting uh, hooked up at, at PCORI would be really helpful. But I think that if I were to say what's the biggest thing is, I think it's like developing relationships in research. Mm. So, right now, funding, big funding for research routes through academic medical centers because they have experience applying, mm. they have Experiencing managing the research teams. So, one of the things I do is I advocate for having people with lived experience every step of the way. But it's a whole different business, it's a whole different language. And, and, and like the episode that I'm producing for Sunday is I interviewed a fellow who's a researcher, and a firefighter. And so he's interested in research that helps to answer questions that first responders have. And I think you're describing what are the questions that young adults have that research could help inform. And so I think none of that happens fast, If researchers are like required to or want to include people with lived experience on their teams, it's something that's unfamiliar. And so it has to build. And so it builds, I think, through relationships. And so I think that one of the things your team might think about is I'll bet there are people in your community already who are going to school and they are junior researchers. Mm -hmm. And so I think first, it's identifying that and building teams where the budding researchers are Members of a team of people with lived experience. But I'll bet that Indiana University. You're from Indiana, right? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. So Indiana University, like, like I could introduce you to the dean of nursing at the Indiana University, and I'll bet. Like now, I'm speaking for her, so that's always <laughs> dangerous, but. But I'll bet she could connect you with researchers who are uh, like Aaron Carroll. Do you know Aaron Carroll?
1: Yes. Actually, we serve on ICER's Midwest CPAC together.
0: Yes. So he's a guy who, what does he have? The incidental.
1: Oh, the Incidental Economist.
0: Yes, thank you. And so what I'm saying is that there are people who, it depends if you're willing to bridge the age span, that there are people who have experience here and who have some humility and are not necessarily interested in their primary thing. Isn't their own funding or their own power, but there are people who this is what they're good at. And I know somebody at the university of California in San Francisco, there are researchers who have expertise in Mm -hmm. engagement and partnering. And I think it's finding those people and building relationships and then thinking about, okay, now how, what I'm going to help, and getting help, and how do you formulate the question?
1: You already
0: know how to build coalitions. It's obviously a really important part. But how to formulate the, your questions about life into research questions, and then Thinking about where's the money? Right. What does it take to get the money? What kind of team do you build? And you invite researchers in, um, mm. and I would be willing to participate in that some way because I feel like I'm on the other extreme. I'm seventy. And <laughs> yeah. I have this podcast, you're my guest. So this is something I care about. And, and again, I have networks that you don't have yet.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And, and I think that's the key. And then you're smart, you have a business, you have a network. That all work itself out. I think it's building the team. And inviting people to join you. And then you and yours control it. As opposed mm-hmm. to the academic medical center controlling it. And they invite you in. It's mm-hmm. like you invite them in. It's, it takes time. As you, you didn't do your policy work thinking it was going to happen yesterday. Yeah. You're thinking about... 10 years down the line. There's stuff today, and there's stuff that is going to take time. Mm -hmm. And and you look for the right moment to take a leap. So this is very exciting. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I signed up for your newsletter Obviously, I'm not a young adult, but and I'm not going to be around when your conference is, but I would have loved to lurk. Yeah. One of the things that's hard, and you're... Let me be so bold as to say, so now you're running a company, and the higher you get, the harder it is to keep your ear to the ground. Yeah. So here I am, I have... I've been involved in PCORI for all these years now 12 mm. years and and I'm on the board and I'm a patient caregiver stakeholder mm. and to me the challenge is how do I keep my ear to the ground how do I how do I connect with people like you and here what's important so mm. that I'm advocating not just because I'm full of myself and I think I know stuff, but I am full of myself, and I do think I know <laughs> stuff you need a yeah, you know what I mean you need a reality check, and you're gonna find yourself that you come from this world, but you know what you're twenty four now, and the thirteen year olds are gonna think different, just like you said really? earlier. It's a different, they have different, they've come through COVID, which you didn't come through.
1: It's so much has changed the adolescent demographic. And a huge part of that is because of social media. And it's very scary. Honestly, a lot of what we see, but yeah, I think what you're saying is totally true. And it's recognizing that you have the experience, but that you don't have all the experiences. And Right. We we do our virtual meetings and I attend at least two of the seven, at least, probably at least four of the seven per month. So it's really enlightening for me. And it's interesting too, because I receive a lot of support from the virtual meetings that we put on as well. So it's very helpful for me too. And it is it is very selfish in some ways, because I'm getting so much support too, but it's amazing the community that
0: we- Why is that selfish? Yes, it is selfish. And what is wrong with selfish? So, yeah. Yeah.
1: Want to Absolutely. At. Yeah. No, but it's really, it really is amazing. And it is so important to keep on hearing what some of the most pressing needs are from our community. And it's really valuable. I mean, it has been instrumental to, to have feedback every step of the way for what we're doing.
0: Yeah. I'm here for you.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much. We appreciate that. We're still learning so much. So it's really
0: Feel free fun. to lean on me and use me. Yeah. I'm likely to say yes. I don't okay. want to say yes. It's, it depends on my own bandwidth and my own health and stuff like that. But okay. I'm likely. I think mm-hmm. what you're doing is necessary. Yeah.
1: Thank you. So I it's necessary.
0: That. I really look forward to meeting you in person in yeah. D.C. in October, and I will try to introduce you around.
1: Yeah, that would be amazing. I'm really excited. I've looked to PCORI for a few years now. I first learned about it through the Association of Healthcare Journalists conference that I attended in college and have just kept up with the work. So I'm really definitely excited to to learn more about Cory.
0: Great. All right. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this. I admitted to you, dear Seeker, that one of the best parts of nursing and podcasting is engaged nosiness. Dropping in for moments into people's lives and sharing their hopes and fears. Dropping into Sneha's life, I see her tenacious strength her inquisitive wisdom and her charismatic leadership. Pow! Snea is not alone. Growing a supportive and learning community, she has her core partners and many volunteers. Her business prospers and she shares the wealth. Kabam! So, what can I say? It can be done. Take strength and charge on. I host, write, edit, engineer, and produce Health Hats the podcast. Kayla Nelson provides website and social media consultation and creates video trailers. Joey Van Leeuwen supplies musical support, especially for the podcast intro and outro. I play Barry Sachs on some episodes alone or with the Lechuga Fresca Latin Band and Morningside Studios Saturday Morning Blues Funk Band under the direction of Dan Fox and Peter Seco. I'm grateful to you, who have the most critical roles, as listeners, readers, and watchers. See the show notes, previous podcasts, and other resources through my website, www.health. Hats.com and my YouTube channel. Please subscribe and contribute. If you like it, share it. See you around the block.